All right, good. It's good to be back. Y'all, uh, just stand with me for a little longer here as we read the text uh, for today. I usually have somebody come up and do the scripture reading uh, for us, but I got greedy today and want to do it all myself. Uh, first of all, let me just thank all of you for praying for Trish and I. Uh, baby Eden Joy uh, was born very, very healthy and uh, just uh, very, very mature. She already just wanted to run the show. I mean, the minute she arrived, she was calling the shots, moving her neck around and kicking her feet and, you know, really strong uh, baby. Uh, there was a there was a reoccurring theme in the hospital. Uh, every couple hours that the nurses were walking in and waking me up, I just keep hearing them saying, this is a strong baby. And uh, she is very strong. Uh, we were wrestling today in bed, and it was just great. She's uh, <clears throat> she's a she's a beautiful beautiful baby. Just please pray for my daughter's salvation. That's what I care about more than anything. Pray for her purity and for her salvation. That God would preserve her and keep her, and that God would give Trish and I the grace to be uh, the parents that Scripture calls us to be. So I, th- I covet your prayers very much. But thank you for all of you reaching out, uh, providing meals, praying for us. Uh, just can't thank you all enough on behalf of Trish and the baby. The, Trish is not um, strong enough yet to, I guess, um, she's certainly eager, but she's definitely not healthy enough yet to release her. Uh, we kind of had a moment in the, in the hospital. Uh, she lost a lot of blood. Uh, she started kind of fading out on us a little bit. Doctors got concerned. There was some kind of scrambling going on. And it's the first time I'd ever seen my wife like that, so I was I was just really concerned for her. Uh got to a point where she couldn't even say her name or where she was or you know, so she had a little moment there in the hospital, so it was something else. So this whole thing has been a huge uh a huge endeavor for sure. Uh but God is faithful and she made it and she's just dying to be at church. So uh that's um that's who Trish is. So thank you so much. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles now as we get to the Word of God and uh, turn with me to John chapter 17. You know, it is New Year's. It's a new year for our church. We're facing a new year of ministry, a new year of uh, wonderful things. We anticipate uh, good things. Uh, I hope that you have some godly resolutions. Uh, forget about all that diet stuff. Uh, pray that your resolutions would be something more akin to like Jonathan Edwards, right, who was resolved uh, above everything uh, to to know God, to study the Word of God, and to grow in the mystery of godliness, and that we would have very similar type of uh, resolutions as Edwards did. And I pray that for our church, we'd also be resolved to just continue in the direction that we're going, that we would strengthen the things that are strong and the things that are weak, that we would strengthen those as well, but we just pray for a very prosperous new year uh, as a church. We have a lot of vision, lots of things coming on the horizon that we want to fulfill. And we just look to God. And, and today I just want to enrich us by focusing on a very simple, basic, fundamental truth of our faith. Uh, and that is the concept of eternal life. Uh, simply because of, I guess, what has transpired this week, I alluded to it, uh, in Sunday school, but I talked about the fact that as glorious and as wonderful as it was to have uh, welcomed our baby into this world, a couple of days later I received a phone call uh, about a 
a dear, dear friend of mine who was taken out of this world. And uh, it was circumstances were really, really grieving. And uh, so just um, just went to a funeral and uh, just was reminded again of the brevity of life and the certainty of eternity. And so I just wanted to uh, go into this passage. I've been dying to preach this for some time now. It's been brewing. And so I wanted to set John 17, verse 3 before us today. And that's the only verse we're going to look at. Verse 3, this is what the Word of God says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why don't you pray one more time with me? Heavenly Father, we simply come now before you and we humble ourselves in your sight. We confess to you our deep need of you. We confess to you, Lord, our inadequacy in so many different areas. Lord, we are woefully unequipped to live the Christian life as we ought to. And so, God, we cry out for your grace. We ask you to be merciful to us. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done by sending your son Jesus into this world and granting us eternal life. Oh, God, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened May our hearts be enlarged as we contemplate and meditate on what your word has to say to us today and what your spirit declares to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, obviously, this passage of Scripture is very famous for many reasons. One of the reasons why it's a very famous passage is because this is uh, situated right in the farewell discourses of Jesus That's to say, this is a body of literature, chapter 14, all the way to chapter 17, even chapter 13 as well, but mainly 14 to 17, where Jesus is really giving his farewell sayings. This is Jesus just just really moments before his betrayal and his arrest and ultimately his inevitable crucifixion. So this is... This is heavy duty, <laughs> uh, Christology here. This is, this is us being given a glimpse into the inner thought life, the soliloquy, if you would, of Jesus' inner consciousness as what he is talking about is what he is thinking about moments before the cross. Just amazing that we have such a glimpse into the mind of Christ. And, It's known as the high priestly prayer of Christ because what he prays, he prays on behalf of his people. Now, this is all about eternal life. And he's already talked about how he aims to give his people eternal life. So the how God is going to do this through Jesus, of course. But then he also now moves on to explain more explicitly what is eternal life. Look with me again to the text. Beginning in verse 1, of course, for some context. He says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given to him, he may give them eternal life. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, or the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What an incredible, uh, amazing passage of Scripture. So what's going on here is that Jesus is revealing himself not only to be the source of life, the agent of life, that is, the agent through which life comes to us, but also, as we'll see, he is also, brothers and sisters, the objective of life. That's really where we're going to go here. He is not just the source. He is not just the agent, the mediator of life, but he is also the very objective and the very goal of life itself. And so I want to approach this in three with three distinct headings so that we get a better understanding of what this eternal life is all about. Number one, just focusing in on what is eternal life. Three things to point out here quickly. Of course, eternal life is salvific. That's point number one under eternal life. It is salvific life. That's kind of obvious, but it means that when you have it, you have gone from death to life. God has brought you out of darkness and into light. Uh, maybe just a, a, a quick explanation of this. Turn to John chapter 3, a very familiar passage here. A lot of familiar passages today. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Listen to this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... Now, I will correct the English translations that cannot seem to get it right. (laughs) That those who believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there the antithesis is perish. What is the opposite of a palumi, the, the idea of perishing, being destroyed? The opposite of that is life, eternal life. Well, now we understand what that means eschatologically. We think of that and we think, well, okay, so then eternal life has to do with the fact that when you die, you don't go to hell, you go to heaven. And you would be absolutely correct in determining that. Absolutely correct. And you know, life is so important, isn't it? Um, Understand this, that the Bible is very clear that man will do just about anything to preserve his life. I mean, people today will go to great lengths to try to preserve their life. I mean, we can talk about what celebrities do to their face to try to preserve eternal (laughs) their their life, right? But even more than that, right now there are people that are developing technology that promises longevity. Now, I'm fascinated with this. Understand, I'm very fascinated with futurists uh, and technology. Those of you that know that, you you know me. But um, there's an entire institute of futurism uh, it's like a technology cult. And what they're trying to devise is a nanotechnology that will eventually be injected into the body, into the bloods, almost like a nanorobotic supercell 
that will be unleashed into your bloodstream. For what purpose? So that it fights off things like disease and it promotes longevity. Matter of fact, probably the most well-known futurist is Ray Kurzweil, who has said that through nanotechnology, eventually man will reach immortality. Now, you think, well, this is crazy, okay, that's a nice analogy, come on, let's get back to reality. Understand that millions and millions of dollars are being poured into this by some of the biggest technology firms in the world. You ever heard of Google? You ever heard of Apple? You ever heard of some of these big tech companies like Microsoft? They are spending millions of dollars on this nanotechnology to try to figure out how in the world we can stop the death process. Matter of fact, Ray Kurzweil says that in a very short time, humanity will go into an age of super centarians, which means we will live far beyond a 100 years because we are going to develop the kind of technology that will allow us to replace inferior systems in the body like the heart and the kidneys and the intestines with robotic systems that will never fail. But you know what? I have a little bit of a speculation with all of this. I don't care what people do with technology. The Bible says the soul that sins will die. You see, the problem with man is not molecular, it is moral. The most fundamental problem that human beings have is religious, not technological. It is not that they don't have enough innovation, is that they are morally depraved and therefore they are incapable, unable, and impotent to help themselves. You can turn man into 90% machine, that still will not result in eternal life. You know why? I mean, let's just get down to Sunday school level. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says, God is going to blow this whole place sky high, including the robots. <laughs> There's nothing you can do when God melts the elements. Your only hope at that point is that you have eternal life. Eternal life can withstand the wrath of God. Eternal life can withstand the judgment of God. Eternal life alone can withstand the grave. I tell you, it's just so fresh in my mind, so brace yourselves. But I just saw a dear friend of mine be put into a casket and be put lowered into the grave. Folks, why do we spend our time doing what we do? Don't you see? All of life is an endeavor to live forever. What madness it is when we make other things priorities in our lives that do not amount to eschatological life, to eternal life. Listen to what James says. Your life is a vapor. If it's not an accident in in the vehicle, if it's not a phone call from the doctor, It will be some global calamity. It will be some supernatural disaster. It will be some terrible act of terrorism. It will be some imperceptible disease that spreads through your body. Something. Eternal life is precious beyond belief. And those that have it have a hope. Those that don't have no hope. 
Jesus is going to the cross and he knows this. Therefore, he wants us to understand that what he came to give is life. He didn't come for judgment. Remember, he said that. He didn't come in order to, in order to judge the world. A sin has taken care of that. The world is already condemned. But he came so that we may have life, eternal life. This life is not just uh, eternal. It's not just salvific. It's also eschatological, meaning that it points us in the direction of heaven. But it is also covenantal. Look at the verse again. This is eternal life. What's the operative verb? To know. What? Eternal life is knowledge? How? What does he mean by to know. So is Jesus just making this up? Of course not. You know he's not. But what I want to say is that what he means here is not just simply a cognitive knowledge so that what Jesus is promoting ultimately is the rationalist worldview. Absolutely not. He's also not promoting sort of a mystical knowledge so that what he's promoting ultimately is the mystical worldview to say, oh, I really feel that I know God. No, no, no. If there's a word that I could use to sum this up, what he's talking about here is covenantal. This is covenantal knowledge. This is knowing God in a communion bond. That's what it means. It all goes back to passages like this, which you know about. Jeremiah 31, 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying what? Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, and I will forgive them of their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. We can say, if you want to think theologically here, that eternal life is covenantally conceived through the covenant of redemption, which is really right here, John 17, 1 through 5. That is the covenant of redemption, meaning the covenant that the Father, Son, and Spirit made before all all of time to redeem a people to themselves. And it is consummated in the eternal covenant, which that's what Hebrews, Hebrews calls the new covenant, the eternal covenant. And time does not allow us to explore, therefore, the way that eternal life conflicted with what was known during Jesus' days, either from a Greek mind or from a Jewish mind. But for the Jewish mind, eternal life was sought in one's association with the Torah. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Many of you maybe know where you're going to this, but... A Jew in that day thought that all I need to do is have a close association, a good knowledge of, a practice and an adherence to the Torah, to the law of God, and I will find therein eternal life. Listen, a long time ago I went to Jerusalem. (laughs) This is back in 2000. And I went to the Western Wall. You guys have seen that where the Jews are bowing down and right head facing the Western Wall. Well, underneath that to the left is what's known as uh, uh, the Rabbi's Tunnel. And I was I was ushered into that tunnel somehow. I won't tell you. I didn't break the law, but somehow I got in there. And when I walked in there, all I saw was 
rabbis everywhere with these, um, it was just, I mean, it was, it was tragic, but it was just, it got me excited because it was just like these podium looking things. And out on these podium looking things were these giant scrolls that are scrolled out across these giant tables and podiums. And up on the walls were all these scrolls that are just stored there. And everything is in Hebrew. And those Jewish rabbis all day long, they just sit there, all day long, just following the Jewish Torah, thinking that they will find eternal life so long as they are devoted to reading and memorizing and obeying the law. Jesus changes the situation. Look at John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures, and they were searching the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's our word. It is these that testify about me. See that? And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What an incredible dynamic we've got going on here. What is Jesus saying? You can devote your entire life to knowing, memorizing, reading, pronouncing, singing the Old Testament Torah and perish. Because you do not have the key to life. You do not have Him who is eternal life itself. Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, all of this is corrected. What it means to have eternal life is that we come to know God in a right relationship. We are forensically justified before the tribunal of God, the judge. And also, we are covenantally bound to God through a communion knowledge of God, which means we have an intimate knowledge of our Creator, our Maker, our covenant Lord through Jesus Christ. Jeremiah the prophet again He hits it out of the park. Jeremiah chapter 9. Listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord, verse 23, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Oh, I tell you what, these tech giants, they think they're so smart. These people that are putting these little glass oracles in all of our pockets, They think they are so smart. They think that they will achieve immortality through their technology. But let not them boast in their wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Donald Trump, it doesn't matter what a great company you've built if you don't have eternal life. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. Now you know for a fact that this knowledge that Jeremiah is talking about is not cognitive. It is not just merely an intellectual assent. Everyone in Israel knew about Yahweh. So it can't be that you just know facts about Christianity. It must be that the knowledge he's speaking about here is existential. It is experiential. It is mystical. Spiritual, that is. That you come to know him in real, 
a, a, a real communion. Real communion. What do I want for the new year? Very simple. Everyone in our church to know God with a greater knowledge. For everyone in our church to pursue the knowledge of God with all ardor and all zeal and vigor and to conform to the knowledge of God in obedience. It's that simple. This is not just a knowledge that we explore philosophically or theologically or exegetically. It's personal. And this is exactly where John goes, or Jesus. Let's begin looking at this personal aspect of eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you. This is Jesus speaking here, and he says, the one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Consequently, and I always remind people because I think this is an incredible fact, but this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus Christ utters his own name. Jesus Christ. Because this is the heart and soul. Because He is the heart. He's got to spell it out to us. What is eternal life about? Jesus Christ said it. Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Um, Let's look at the Father. Let's begin there. Because here He says that they may know you. Remember, go back to verse 1. Who is He addressing? The Father. When He says, Father the hour has come. So the Son, speaking to the Father, says, this is the heart and soul of eternal life, that they may know You, Father. When He calls Him here, the only true God. Now why would He do that? Well, obviously, in the, in the slogan, the only true God, several things are implied. Well, one of those things is that what Jesus is calling for here is true worship. In other words, it's the opposite of idolatry. How do you have eternal life? It is not going to be through idols. It is not going to be by worshiping whatever God you want. Does our culture need to hear this today? I mean, how many people do you talk to about the gospel? Or how many people have you talked to or have you heard or in your family or at work that say, Oh, I, yeah, I have my own views when it comes to stuff like that. I have my own beliefs. What they're saying is what Luther said. Luther said if the name of the game is everyone's in the corner doing their own spiritual thing, it just means we all go to hell in our own way. <laughs> That's right. There is only one true God. Literally, the Greek is the only true God. This is this manas. The only true God. That's what it is. And this goes back not surprisingly to the Old Testament. It goes back to the Shema of Israel. What is the Shema? You know, the Hebrew word Shema means hear, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, God says, Moses says, Hear, O Israel. This is very important what's coming. This is a call to worship. This is a call to listen to the most important thing of all. The Lord is our God The Lord is one. Now, I consulted many Hebrew scholars on that verse, and all of them suggested that when the Shema says the Lord is one, contrary to the way that maybe you have heard or studied this by a lot of people, it's not seeking to, um, it's not seeking just to argue for the Trinity. Because the Hebrew word echad is a unity of plurality. Okay, fair enough, and that's right, it has the capacity. But Moses is not really trying to enter the Trinitarian fray here. 
What he's saying is by saying the Lord our God is one in this context is that he is unique. He is the only one. He is the true one. He is the genuine one. That's what it means to have eternal life. That we worship the genuine God that is. The implications of God as the one true God also refer to this, that He is the living God. That means that our knowledge of God is vital. It's alive. And therefore, we we are called to set our hope on the living God. Do a study of this. Go home. Type in um, somewhere. <laughs> your, your, your Bible software, Google maybe, could even help you with it. Sometimes Google can be a decent theologian. Type it in. The living God. Look at a Bible hub or eSword or whatever. All the different places where the living God is mentioned. I did such a study in the New Testament. It's amazing. This is what it says. First Timothy chapter four, verse 10. We set our hope on the living God. Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. He is the son of the living God. The fact that God is alive means he is a threat. <laughs> we have to reckon with him. He is not dead. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He is the living God. He is the one that has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. We must reckon with the living God. He is a consuming fire. He is not static. He is not neutral. He's not a force. He's not just like a neutron floating out in space doing nothing. He's alive. And that means our communion with Him is alive should be a living relationship. Ask yourself and jot it down, write it down and talk about it at dinner tonight. How's your communion with God? Is there intercourse? Is there an exchange? Is it Bible open if you journal? Journal? Is it distractions are gone? You, God, prayer, your heart, and you have a living Exchange with God. I'm not talking about visions and dreams. I'm talking about a spirit of God within your heart convicting you that you are a child of God. Testifying to you that these things are so. A living, thriving relationship because we are connected to the one true God who is the living God. The apostles in Acts 14 called the pagan world, the whole pagan world, to turn from their idols and serve the living God. You see that? The living God says to the whole world outside of Christianity, you are all dead. You're wrong. You are in a bad place. You are not in a proper relationship with your Creator. Furthermore, you are bowing down to things that are not God that cannot give you eternal life. Therefore, when the true and living God works in our hearts, Romans 9, verse 26, says we become the children of the living God. And when He works in our hearts, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, it is the Spirit of the living God that is regenerating us in our hearts. 
And in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, because we have been renovated by the living God, guess what? Then we become the temple of the living God. What does that mean? That the living God who renovated us comes to dwell and to reside in us. The entire church is the church of the living God. You get the picture. Hebrews chapter 3, when you turn away, when you turn away from eternal life, when you turn away from the faith, when you turn away from Christianity, you are turning away from the living God. The author of Hebrews is wanting you to feel the weight of that. You're not turning away from a religious system. Uh, 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 You're not turning away from a network of people. You're not turning away from religious things. You are turning away from the God who lives. And that's why I said, He's a threat. And we have to reckon with Him. And that's where we need Jesus. The one true God means that our communion with Him is living and thriving and responsive because as our Father, He delights in our praise, He hears our prayers, He disciplines us when we fail. And that's love. That's love. So then, when we go through trials, just read Hebrews chapter 12. This church is being persecuted. This church, members of the church are being imprisoned. They're having their things taken away from them by force. They're being beaten. And the author of Hebrews seems to connect that with the concept of discipline. That God is disciplining His children. Wow. But see, it's more of a formative discipline. In other words, it's a training in righteousness. It is a training for endurance. And in the midst of that, what we find is that God is training up His children. Don't despise your trials, in other words. Don't despise your trials. Your trials are the rod of a loving, faithful Father that cares enough about you to train you to trust Him, even through trials. Oh, how beautiful is that? What that means is that your trial is not for nothing. You ever been hopeless in a trial? Come on. You ever been hopeless in trials? What you're saying is you fail to understand that that trial has a purpose in your life. We should never be hopeless as God's children because our Father is always working everything out for our good. No matter how dark, no matter how bad. I mean, I told you I went to a funeral and there before me is a young man. His name's Scott, 25 years old. Just got married, just had a baby. I mean, he is green around the ears, man. He's 25 years old. He barely, you know, he's got a job. He's doing some things. Mom dies in a terrible way. He inherits four siblings. Time to grow up really quick. And how did he respond? I can testify to Scott's faith. He responded with absolute, total resolve and total resignation to the mercy and sovereignty of God. 
and a lot of glory was given to God. Don't despise your trials because they are from your Father. Eternal life is, in this passage, binatarian. Not Trinitarian, but binatarian. Meaning, it is Father and Son. Now, if we extend out to the whole farewell discourse, going from chapter 14 all the way to 17, it is Trinitarian. Because the Spirit is there. He's there. He's there. Now, in terms of the Son, we have the same covenantal communion and knowledge of Him as we do the Father. Once again, this is eternal life. That they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. It's amazing, but the emphasis here is on Jesus' apostleship. Whom you have sent. So Jesus becomes the essence of life itself. And in fact, the language of life in the Son is often lifted from the Old Testament where life uh, is found explicitly in Yahweh. So for example, let me just, let me show you what I'm getting at. Isaiah 53 verse 3, 55 verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. You ever hear Jesus tell people, come? Yes. It is a synonym to faith. Come means believe. And here Yahweh says, come to me. Listen that you may live. See that? Life found by coming to Yahweh. And therefore, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Live. Don't die. Don't perish. But this is exactly what Jesus taught. Only difference is, he said, now, contingent upon you having life, is whether or not you come to me. John 8, chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sin. Because unless you believe that I am He, you will die. Wow. But the mission of the Son is not to provide judgment, as we have said. That's already been done. His mission is salvific. That's why he says in John 5.24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, very close parallel, he has eternal life and does not come in a judgment, but he passes out of death and into life. See, there is an inaugurated eschatology that is embedded in the words eternal life. Why do I say that? Look look at the verse with me. Verse 3. This is eternal life. That's a present tense verb. This is present tense. And then continues a present tense construction that you may know present tense. The one true God and Jesus Christ. So, Eternal life introduces this concept of an already not yet experience of eternal life so that if in your mind, when you think eternal life, all you think about is heaven, 
then you've missed what eternal life is. Eternal life begins here and now. Turn with me to John chapter 4. See, John chapter 4, verse 13. Here, Jesus is just having a simple conversation, everyday, common conversation with a woman. Woman at the well. And look at how he speaks about eternal life. He doesn't say, you believe in me, you die, you go to heaven. It's not that simple. It's more very uh, variegated than that. It's more nuanced. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Here we go. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Oh boy. Oh boy, if we just believe that, right? If we practice that. If we delve into the meaning of that. What Jesus is saying here is that he is all satisfying. That we should never, our hearts should never be desperate to be fulfilled. Our hearts should not be desperate to be fulfilled. Our hearts should be satisfied in him. Right? It's not that, yes, we're on a spiritual quest, but our quest has been answered. We found it. <laughs> right? What if the disciple says, we found him. The search is over. We found the one whom the prophets speak of. And this one says, if you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. But the water that I'll give him, it will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What is he saying? Oh man, what he's saying is this, that when the Spirit of God is operative in your heart, when Jesus Christ becomes for you life itself, what happens is that within you comes eternal life. You are granted eternal life. It doesn't come from without. It doesn't come from cosmetics. It doesn't come from plastic surgery. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Oh God, give us illumination to know what that means. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me bring things to a close. Jesus is promising to be salvific. He is promising to give us salvation both now and then. He is promising to be for us all satisfying so that we're totally content in who He is and in what He has done for us. What that results in, what it should result in, is a lifelong obsession to know Him. To know Him. A lifelong obsession to become more acquainted with Jesus. See what I mean? Personal. You see that? Oh, I tell you what. It's not just abstract theoretical Bible knowledge. It's not just exegetical arguments from the Greek text. Oh, you gotta get, if that doesn't lead you to actual communion with Jesus Christ, something is amiss. I would say something is horribly amiss. If it doesn't lead you to a greater savor of Him, the person, Jesus, Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I think of no better, no better text than this. And our brother Landon preached this and 
I don't think it could have been preached any better. But I'm going to add a few comments. Listen to what it says here. Whatever things were gained to me, because we're asking, what is a, what does somebody obsessed with Jesus Christ look like? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Number one, everything in contrast to Him is rubbish and worse. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And here it is, that I might be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then we could, verse 10, almost add, Oh, that I may know Him. You see that? That I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection. My, my, my sister Nicole, that, whose funeral I went to, she knows Him. And she rests in the power of His resurrection. I will see her again. It's not the end for her. In a sense, it's only the beginning. We will meet again. Jesus says to those mourning at Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? If you believe it, then you should have an indomitable hope that nothing and no one can take away from you. Not the grave, not the sword, not death, not pestilence, not fear, not nakedness, not, not poverty, not sickness, nothing. This is what our pursuit should be. You ever seen a person who's obsessed with something? You ever seen that? You ever seen a person that has an all-consuming passion to do something? They lose sleep over it. They risk. They're willing to forgo health. Uh, I'm reading a book on Jonathan Edwards right now called Edwards the Exegete. And I was reminded again of that beautiful fact of his biography that many biographers have already pointed out, but it says that Jonathan Edwards would rather forego, many times forego his supper, his dinner, so that he would not be broken off from his studies. Forget dinner! What are you talking about? Have the bread of heaven. (laughs) I'll starve. Go ahead, you guys eat. When's the last time you forwent a meal because you were too busy pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Finally, brothers and sisters, this leaves us with an evangelical imperative. Eternal life must be sought at all costs. And is the highest priority of any man or woman who would want to see that their doom is averted and the door to paradise open to pursue the knowledge of the only true God in Jesus Christ. And we should seek to spread the knowledge of Him in every place. In every place. We have the key to life. We have what people need. That's another sermon. (laughs) Father, oh Lord. (sighs) 
We stand in awe of You and of Your Son. We recognize with the Apostle Paul who says, Oh, the depths and the riches of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways. And yet, Lord, give us the strength to search. Give us the strength to dig. To go after You like a deer that pants after the water brook. Oh God, so my soul longs for You. And if it doesn't, grant us repentance and provide us Your grace and Your strength, O Lord. We don't want it to be something that's in our own strength, but that is a sweet spiritual exercise that is empowered solely by Your grace. That's our prayer, God. For Your, or by Your grace and for Your glory. And that's where we want our church to rest this year. In the pursuit of eternal life, growing into the knowledge of that for the good of our souls and the good of our church. In Jesus' name, Amen.